Music is a big blessing, amen? And so, thank you so much for the, for the team that was leading worship. And it's beautiful to see how the, I told them what I was preaching about and how the songs is going to fit the message and how they curated that. But sometimes that's not always the case, right? Sometimes when you preach, the singing can be a bit different or the songs can convey a different meaning. And I, I was thinking about a story that I heard once of a pastor that was preaching on, on the, the, the ills of drinking alcohol. And so he was preaching and preaching and so he started making a point and he said, if I had all the champagne in the world, I would throw it in the river. Somebody said, Amen. So the pastor was preaching again, and he said, if I had all the whiskey in the world, I would throw it in the river. And once again, a few more said, amen, and he kept on preaching. He said, if I had all the brandy in the world, I would throw it in the river. And the whole church said, amen, and the pastor went to go sit down, and then the worship leader came up and said, we will sing the next song, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> so uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad that's not the case today. Our songs and the, the sermon will work together. <laughs> Did you have a good week? Everybody back from Big Camp? How many of you enjoyed Big Camp? That's good. Oh, man, it was a blessing. I wasn't there for the whole time, but I was there at least for a few days to enjoy the blessings um, of Big Camp. For my sermon today, we're going to talk about all in, saying yes to the mission of the church. Not necessarily just this church, but the church that Jesus had in mind. But before we start, I want us to play a, a quick little game, and the game is called Spot the oddity, spot the oddity, and what I want you to do is, I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to find the odd thing in this picture, right? So here's the picture. It is a, a picture of uh, Michelangelo's uh, work um, of Moses. That's Moses. Can anybody see the odd thing in this picture? Okay, a weird hairdo, a beard. Is there something that jumps out at you? Be like, man, that should actually. He's got a laptop, does he? Oh, maybe a tablet, okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna zoom in and then you'll probably see it very quickly. It's spot the oddity. Right? No, those are horns on Moses. So Michelangelo, as he was sculpting this, sculpted Moses with horns. And the reason he did that is he was reading the, the, the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, and in the Vulgate, they mistranslated a specific word. The, the word um, is, is the word keren, uh, or actually karan, which means he was shining. So when he came down from the mountain, um, his, his face was shining, was illuminated, and, but, but the person that translated it, St. Jerome, when he translated it from the Greek to the Latin, he misunderstood the word, and he's, the, the root word is actually horns. And so he translated, Moses came down from the mountain, and his face had horns. Mistranslations that can kind of construe the whole message, right? Because I don't know about you, but that's completely different than his face was glowing. Do you want to play another one? Spot the oddity? Okay, so it's also on a word that is mistranslated in the Bible, a, um, a word that I think most of us would know. So another oddity. Can you see the oddity here? Do you know what that is? It's this church, right? And I see some of you are frowning, but like, that's quite odd. How's that a mistranslation of a word in the Bible, right? The word that is mistranslated is the word church, right? The word church in the Bible is actually not a building. 
the original word is actually a juxtaposition of two different words. The one word is ek, meaning to call, uh, meaning out of, and kaleo, which means to call. So the word church in the original language means to call out, a people that are called out. So the church in the biblical sense is not a building, it's not an organization, but it's a people. So if this building wasn't there, the church would still be here if we congregated here. Right? And so the mistranslation of this is that sometimes when we, we, when we talk about church, we talk about going to church or do you belong to a church? So do I go to a building or am I a part of a specific organization? But the church isn't that in scripture. And so I want to kind of recalibrate our thoughts on church by looking at what Jesus had in mind when he thought of church. And I want to go to the story where Jesus actually founded the church, started the church. And I want to start off with a question. Now, if you can go back in your imagination, say you could go back 2,000 years when Jesus was walking this earth. He was there, maybe in Galilee, maybe in Jerusalem. And Jesus walks around, let's say Galilee, there, uh, around the Sea of Galilee. And you're there, you're a fisherman, you're there on the, on the ocean doing certain things, maybe surfing, whatever. And Jesus walks by and he calls you. He says, come and follow me. And so you follow him. You've heard of this rabbi, this, this, this prophet. And then you start following him and you're walking with him for one year, two years, three years. You see the miracles that he's doing. And then one day, Jesus comes to you, and, and you're part of the inner group, and he says to you, hey, hey, I want to talk to you. I've got a big plan, and, and I want to I wanna get your input. I want to find out what do you think. I want to start this, this people group, this movement that's going to continue the work that I have started here. I want to start the, uh, uh, this movement. Where do you think I should start the church? Which location should I start the church? What would be the best way to get the message out, get the, the, the people excited and involved with this motion and this movement? What would you say? Where would Jesus start the church? What advice would you give him? Would you say, well, Jesus, it makes sense that you'd start in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is one of the major capitals of the world at that time. It's a place where all the religious stuff happens, so definitely Jerusalem. Some of us might say, but what about not Galilee? You've ministered here in Galilee for such a long time. Galilee would be a good option. Today I want to look at a story that does not include Jerusalem or Galilee, but a completely different place where Jesus starts the church. And I believe the place where Jesus starts the church is indeed, shows us what his mission for the church is. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and before we get to Matthew, into the story of Matthew, I want to give a bit of context to the book of Matthew. Now, the book of Matthew, Matthew was a, was a, a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote the gospel of Matthew, and he wrote it to sp two specific groups of people. Firstly, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, and he was writing to them to show that Jesus was the Old, the Old Testament Messiah. He was the guy that was going to come and liberate them. So there's constantly all these allusions in the, Old Test in, in the book of Matthew to to the Old Testament. So, you, you know, the, the prophet Isaiah said this, and this is how Jesus fulfilled it. And so we have all of these allusions to the Old Testament. But then he was also writing to the New Testament. And the New Testament church, they didn't have Bibles, they didn't have books, so he was giving a systematic teaching of Jesus, kind of giving them a handbook of the writings and the teaching of Jesus so that when they would read this, they would know what Jesus was teaching specifically about the kingdom. And so he broke up the book in specific portions so it's easy to remember for them. And there's three specific portions. 
The first one is about the person of the king. He talks about who Jesus is. And it starts in the first verse where it says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then from then on, he explains who Jesus is, what Jesus will do, and that Jesus is this perfect son of God, this perfect son of man, this, this, this true Israelite. He, he walks in the steps of Israel, in a sense. If you remember the story of Israel, Israel was, uh, was in Egypt. And you know, Genesis uh, starts with, with a, or has the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, which is Israel. And then we get to Exodus where they're in Egypt. And then from Egypt, they move and God liberates them. They go through the Red Sea and through the Red Sea, they're in the desert for 40 years. And then they go to the mountain. During this time, God gives them the law and he's creating a new people and a way of thinking. Jesus follows very similar pattern. We have here in Matthew chapter one where he starts and then we have the story of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And Jesus starts his ministry, and right out of the baptism, he goes into the desert for 40 days. And right out of the desert, he goes to the mountain where he he starts to preach about the kingdom of heaven. And he says that, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So what we have here is Matthew is showing us that Jesus is this true Israelite. He is this true Messiah. He is truly the Old Testament king that is coming to rule again. So he talks about the person of the king. But then we have the specific phrase in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 where it says, from that time. So Jesus was doing certain things. There was stuff happening. But from this time on, from this verse on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first block is about the person of the king. The second block is about the proclamation of the king and the kingdom. We have all these teachings of Jesus. But then we see that same phrase again in Matthew chapter 16, which says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and from the elders and the chief priests and the, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So we have this, these blocks. Moses, uh, Matthew starts and he says, this is Jesus. He is the Messiah. If you're looking for the Messiah, this is it. He is the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. He's from this royal lineage, right? And then he starts acting like the Messiah. He starts preaching about the king and the kingdom. And then after, after this, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had just ministered for three and a half years, and he's preparing himself to go to the cross, to show us what his kingdom is about. His kingdom, his kingdom isn't about upward, upward mobility, but about sacrifice and surrender. So the story that we're going to look at is the story that happens right before Jesus is preparing himself for the cross. Matthew chapter 16 Matthew chapter 16, and, and we, we start this story, and there's three, three kind of firsts for Jesus. He's been ministering for three and a half years. He's been around, but there, there are three firsts in this story. This is the first time that Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. It says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, if you look at the map, you'll see here that, that that little spot there is where Jesus ministered most of his time, right? If you read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus ministered most of the time there. And then if you read John, you'll see that he ministers quite a bit in Jerusalem as well. And they're quite far from each other. They're about um, 160 kilometers, I think. Um, so it's about a 40-hour-plus walk, 50-hour-plus walk. Um, so it's quite a far way. And, and you read the stories, you'll see that there's a lot of places, Shechem and uh, Samaria and Emmaus, in Jerusalem. So Jesus moves between this, and so that place is um, Capernaum, where 
his base of operation was, and he kind of moved up and down here. Now, during this time, there's a place called the Caesarea. So sometimes when you read the Bible, we read that Jesus is in Caesarea, but he's not going there. If you look to the next map, you'll see that this is where Jesus went in this story. Caesarea Philippi. And so Jesus was ministering here. So Jesus, if you read the story and you're kind of trying to follow where he was just before this, Jesus is ministering in this area. A lot of people think he was there, Magdala, round about there. But Jesus purposefully and willfully walks all the way from here to Caesarea Philippi, a place he's never been. I want you to kind of think about that for a moment. Jesus has been with his disciples for three and a half years. They moved from Galilee to Jerusalem. Most of his movement is south, right? And, and he moves between Jerusalem and Galilee, and he's up and down between those areas. He's never gone to Caesarea Philippi, and there's a good reason. Caesarea Philippi is close to Mount Hermon, which is the most northern past where Israel was. And this place was one of the worst places that you could go as an Israelite. If you're a good Israelite, you would actually try and navigate around that place because it was a place of great pagan worship. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. Um, that's the ruins that are still there in Caesarea Philippi if you had to go there. And there's a specific thing there called the, um, that's, how, that's how it would have looked, uh, uh, artist's rendition of what it would look like when Jesus was there. And if you go there now, you'll see that the, this big hole here, they call it the Gate of Hades or the Grotto of Pan. So this place, Caesarea Philippi, was the great worship place of the god named Pan. And Pan was a rustic god. He was one of the pagan gods of fertility. So he was also the god of the Pan flute. Or if you're very scared, have you heard of where you would get into a state of panic, right? It comes from that because he was a God that would hide in the bushes and scare people, and um, he, he was the God of fertility. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the artist's rendition of this, the gates of Hades was just kind of behind the temple of um, Augustus. There was the court of Pan and the nymphs. There was the temple of Zeus. There's the tomb temple of the sacred goats and the temple of Pan and the dancing goats. Now, I, I, was, I was at this place about a few, few years ago and I walked from here all the way there in probably like two minutes, not even. That's a slow walk. Like it's, it's, it's not a big place. Now you can imagine that there are so many worship places there. This place is teeming with pagan worship. This place is just all over the place with stuff that a good Christian or a good Israelite or a good believer in God would not get into. Why did Jesus choose to go to Caesarea Philippi? I mean, he, he, he couldn't just call an Uber and say, hey, can you take us to Caesarea Philippi? Him and his disciples had to walk there 50 kilometers, right? 50 kilometers, that's about what? 11 hours of walking. Jesus is in Galilee, he's there with his people, and, and the story, if you read before that, that, that was one of the first places where Jesus started to do all of these miracles, and they say that you're the son of God. And so Jesus starts to see something in his disciples. He starts to see glimpses of where they are realizing who he is. He's doing stuff, and more and more they come into realization, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus? And at one point he says, I think they're ready. I think they're ready to get it. So now let's go to Caesarea Philippi. And for 10 hours, they're walking up north, and they're walking, and the disciples are like, Jesus, where are we going? We're in Caesarea Philippi. What, what, Caesarea Philippi? Have you not heard what happens in Caesarea Philippi? Have you not heard about the rabbis that said, if you're a good Jew, you would never go to Caesarea Philippi? Because this place is where they would do all these horrible things, all this worship of pagan gods. They would, they would worship goats. 
Because Pan was, the, was half goat, half human, what they believed. And so they would throw uh, goats into that gates of Hades. And what they believed this gate of Hades or the grotto of Pan was, was a, 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 a water um, base. And they believed, the pagans believed that this was the place where the, that was the gate of the underworld. So they would worship here and they would believe that the, the gods of the underworld would come through that gate to our world. So not only was it teeming with, 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 uh, with temples and, and, and pagan worship, but they understood it as a very significant place for the underworld, a very significant place for the dark forces. So Jesus says to his disciples, hey, let's go to Caesarea Philippi. And so he walks to Caesarea Philippi, and when he gets there, um, he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Hey, disciples, you've been walking with me. You've heard the chatter. You've heard people talking. What do they say? Who am I, right? And they respond, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So they, they say that you're a prophet. Obviously, not just a man, but you're a prophet. And then Jesus says, and he said to them, who do you say that I am? This is one of the fundamental and, and uh, profound questions that Jesus could ask, not only them, but for us. Jesus asks all of us, who do you say that I am? And so he says, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He is revealing something. And later on, Jesus says, well, you couldn't have known this. It is the father that revealed this to you. But what he's saying is that, Jesus, you are the Messiah. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were three officers that were anointed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. A prophet is somebody that went from God to the people. The priest is the one that went from the people to God. Both of them are mediators. And then there was the king that had to keep the justice of God and had to rule in the power of God. So Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. He is not only, he doesn't only bring the word of God, he is the word of God. Right, John 1 verse 1 says um, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says that He is the one that shekinahs us with us. He is, the, he, he is the enfleshment of God. So He comes as this perfect mediator, but He's also the priest that knows everything about us because He's not only 100% God, He's 100% man, so He is this perfect bridge between humanity and divinity. He comes in and steps in and says, I know of their weaknesses. That is why Hebrews can say that we can go with him to his throne with boldness because he knows of our weaknesses. He knows what we go through. And then he is the king, the ultimate king that knows what the kingdom is about. So, so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's not just saying, well, you, this is a nice name. He's saying, we get who you are. You are the one that was promised for hundreds of years. You are the one that Daniel foretold. You are the one that is going to liberate us and save us. You are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the son of God. And I can just imagine in Jesus' mind, he's like thinking, yes, finally they get it. And if they know who I am, I'm going to tell them who they are. And then Jesus continues. He says, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, the Greek word there is Petros. And I, and upon this rock, the Greek word there is Petra, right? So um, Peter, Petros, is like a pebble, small pebble. And the word there, rock, is the bedrock, the foundation, the cornerstone. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is saying that on this proclamation, on this idea, the, the idea that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that is the foundation of the church. He says the foundation of the church is built on Christ. And then he gives this point. And the gates of what? 
of Hades will not overpower it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense why Jesus had to go to Caesarea Philippi? Can you imagine? Jesus is walking for, for, for 10, 11 hours, 50 kilometers, navigating him way all the way to Caesarea Philippi. And he's standing there and he's looking at all this wickedness going on. He hears the music. He, he, he hears about the revelry. He hears about all the, 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 the sexual immorality that's going on. And the disciples, they, they almost don't want to look. They, they look at the gross darkness covering this place spiritually. And Jesus stands there and says, guys, I want to ask you a question. Who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, Elijah and John the Baptist and, and Jeremiah. And he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And they're like, oh, you are Jesus the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And he says, now that's who I am. I will tell you, you are, you are the church. You are the called out people. And the called out people, the people that will keep the work that I have started to do, and you will be so powerful, you will go out into the darkness, and not even the gates of Hades will prevail against you. Jesus is looking at the gate of Hades. He's looking and staring it down and saying, look down there. Look at the darkness that those people are in. Those are the people that you're supposed to go to. You see, the church has never been a place that we go to. The church has always been a people that go out. Right? That's the purpose of church. That was Jesus' vision of the church. Now I want to expound on that a bit more. If you have your Bibles, you can go to verse 21. So Jesus is saying this. He's, uh, he, Peter confesses um, that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus says that this is what is going to happen. I'm going to give you the power. Then you'll see in verse 21, it says, from that, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So, so this is right before Jesus knows, okay, I'm ready to go to the cross. He's just founded the church. He just started the church in a dark place. So he's saying to his church, he's saying to us, the church was started in a dark place. It was started so that we will redeem, not retract from the darkness. You with me? Jesus is calling the church to redeem, not retract from the darkness. And then he says, I'm ready for the cross. And he starts preparing himself. Then right after that, Jesus in verse 24 talks about taking up your cross. Right? He says, this is going to be the cost of disciples. This is going to be the cost of being in the church. You will have to take up your own cross and follow me. So when Jesus calls us to be a part of this community, he's calling for some commitment. He's calling us to do something. He's calling us to be all in for his mission. He's calling us to go out, out with everything that we have. And then there's something interesting. Verse uh, Chapter 17, Jesus is transfigured. Now, if you read there, it says, now after six days, Jesus took um, with him Peter and James and John, his brother. Now, six days is significant in Jewish thinking, right? Six days always signifies something quite um, profound that will happen. Jesus created, or God created the world in six days, and then the Sabbath, the Sabbath was there. So six days is quite significant. So he goes there six days, and then... Um, Verse 2, and when he was transfigured before them, so he's on a mountain. We don't know exactly what mountain, but it's quite close to there. It could be Mount Hermon, which is close to Caesarea Philippi, or Jesus could have moved down. We're not exactly sure, but he's on a mountain, and he transfigures himself, right? Or he's transfigured, right? And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Two people are there with Jesus. Now, I think that there is a significance between where Jesus starts the church, calling the church or the people of God to say there's going to be a cost to your discipleship and Moses and Elijah. Let me explain. There is a parallel between Moses and Elijah. And so Moses represents the law, right? He's the one that gave it. So the law of Moses, the Torah. And then Elijah normally represents the prophets, so when Jesus sometimes talks, he would talk about the law and the prophets. So in one sense, they represent the Old Testament. 
They're the figureheads of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They're the figureheads of all the believers of the Old Testament, but they're also the figureheads of the believers of the New Testament in a sense, because Moses represents those who died in Christ and that was taken to heaven, right? So he died and God took him to heaven. And then Elijah represents those that will not see death, but will be translated and be taken to heaven, right? So they represent these two, but there's something very significant, significant about their ministries, if you go to Deuteronomy and you see uh, where Moses gives the mantle over to Joshua, he, he gives this verse. He says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. That's an important verse. He was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So the people realize they, they are going to follow him because Moses had anointed him. He had anointed him with the spirit of wisdom, and so now they're following Joshua. He keeps doing the work that Moses started. So there's a giving of, a, a giving of the baton. There's a, a movement from Moses to Joshua. It's interesting, if you look at, at 2 Kings, we see the same thing between Elijah and Elisha. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do before, you, uh, uh, before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of what? Of your spirit on me. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw them opposite, they said, they see, they're seeing Elisha there, and they say, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So here are the two figureheads of the Old Testament, the, the, the great fathers, Moses and Elijah, right? And before they die, before they, they go away, they, they, they do something significant for the work to continue. Moses gives his, uh, give, anoints um, Joshua so that the spirit can be with him, the spirit of wisdom so that he could continue the work that Moses was doing. The same with Elijah. He did the same thing. He gave his, the spirit so that Elisha could continue the work. Yes. Now, if we jump to John chapter 14. Now, let's just keep the chronology in our mind. Jesus has ministered for three years, three and a half years, and he goes to Caesarea Philippi. He goes to Caesarea Philippi, and he starts his church there. Here, foundations, he says to his guys, hey, I'm going to start this movement. I'm going to get out the, this people that are called together. Not long after that, Jesus is on the mountain, and he's transfigured. And they see Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine for yourself, you're on the mountain there, chilling with Jesus, and suddenly he starts radiating. You've never seen this. And there's Moses and Elijah. As a Jewish boy, you'd be like, what? Right? Not long after that, you find yourself in the upper room in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word there, helper, is the Greek word parakletos, which is a juxtaposition also of two words. Para meaning like parallel, and kaleo once again, the one that is called, right? So the, the, the word there is one that is called to walk beside us, to help us, to minister with us. And that another is the idea that Jesus was the first paraclete. John is the only one that uses this word, and he uses it five times. He uses it four times in reference to the Holy Spirit and once to the reference of Jesus. So when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, he's saying, I was the first parakletos. I was the first helper, the advocate, the counselor. Those are all the translations that you can have of this word. I was the first one, but I'm going to pray to the Father. Can you see the Trinity at work? I'm going to pray to the Father so that he will send another one. So that he will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. 
So he's saying he will not only be with you, but he will be in you. I don't know about you, but there is allusions to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is realizing his time on this earth is short. Right? He has already started the church, his people, his disciples. And now he's saying to them, I'm going to go, but I'm going to keep you here. You're going to keep doing the work that I have called you to do, and I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can continue the work. Just like Joshua kept the work of Moses and Elisha kept the work of Elijah, I will keep you so that you can do the work of Christ. See, Christians are supposed to be like Christ. And the church is supposed to be a place that we don't just congregate to, but a place that we go out. Now, the church primarily is a place that should go out, and secondarily a place that we congregate. It's not wrong to congregate in a building. It's not wrong to worship and sing these songs. That is good, and that is, that is something that we should do, but that is not our primary objective as a church. Now, if you look at the, the expansion of the church, you will see this same thing. So we have this Moses and Elijah. I just explained that. If you go to Acts, this, is, this verse is the key of the whole book of Acts. Everything flows from this verse. Um, Acts chapter one, verse eight, it says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus had already spoken about the spirit that will come and now he had died and resurrected and he's on his way. So just before Jesus died, he spoke about the spirit and they would receive the spirit. Then Jesus went through the cross, he resurrected and then before he goes to heaven, he reminds his disciples, he reminds the church and he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's talking about moving outwards, right? Now we see this fulfilled in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. And when the days of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Um, and, this, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind and the, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the divided tongues as, as fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when the angel of the Lord appeared, oh, sorry, so I'm going I'm to get to that verse now. So now they're there in, in, in this place and they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and they're praying. Now, I don't know about you, but when I used to read Acts chapter 2, I used to have this idea in my mind that they were all there together praying, worshiping waiting for the Spirit. And then suddenly, the, the, the tongues of fire just came down on all of them, and they you know, were filled with the Holy Spirit. But when you read it in the original, the, the story actually is that they were there, and the whole place was filled with this divine fullness. And then, when it, when, when it says that the, the, the portions went out to them, the, the original word there is that it's like a butcher that cuts the, the, the piece of meat. So we have this filling of the place where they are, and then there's the separation, a cutting, and then it goes to each of them. Now, once again, I want to go to the Old Testament and show the significance, and then I'll wrap this up. Exodus chapter 3 verse 2 says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. So he's, God is revealing himself to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. In Deuteronomy chapter five, we read, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. So we have this idea that fire represents the, 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 the glory of God, of God's um, filling of something. Exodus chapter 13 writes, and the Lord went before them day in the pillar of a cloud and led them all along the way and by night a pillar of fire to give them the light and that they might travel by day and by night. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we have this idea in the Old Testament that God was leading his people through a cloud and a pearl of fire. And then when he stopped and it went down, that's when he filled the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, the filling of the tabernacle, the filling of the temple is the same as the spirit or the fire coming down, right? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all the journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Now in Chronicles, when, when Solomon builds the second temple, we see a similar story. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, so he's praying a prayer of dedication on the temple that he has built, fire came down from heaven and consumed burnt the offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And as the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. When the people of Israel saw the fire that came down, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down and faces on the ground and on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good and um, his steadfast love endures forever. So get this in your mind. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. He's ministering, he has ministered now for three and a half years. He's doing all of these things and he's showing certain things to his disciples to, to substantiate this idea that he is the Messiah. And so eventually he starts to see glimpses in their eyes to say, they're getting it. They know who I am. They, they're kind of catching on. And so he walks 10, uh, 50 kilometers, about 10 or 11 hours, all the way to Caesarea Philippi. And he's standing there on the outskirts of, the, of Caesarea Philippi, looking at gross immor uh, immorality, gross spiritual darkness. And he looks at this place. He looks at a place that most religious people, would, especially Jews, would, would run from. And he stands there and he looks at this and he says to them, who do you say that I am? I say that you're the Christ. And he says, if you know who I am, if you know the power that's in me, if you realize that I am Christ, I am the Messiah, I am sent from God and I am God. If you realize who I am and I am with you, I will tell you what you can be through me. You are going to be the church. You are going to be the called out people that will go to places like this. Go to places of darkness to liberate them, to tell them about this. And then right after that, Jesus walks back, or we don't know exactly where, but he's on the mountain and he transfigures himself. And then Moses and Elijah is there. And then later on, a, a, a few weeks or a few months later, when they're in the upper room, they were reminded of all these things that have happened. And Jesus says, I need to go away. And they're like, no, Jesus, you can't go. You can't go now. And Jesus says, I will give you the spirit, right? And they imagine, oh, you know, Joshua could do the work that he did because Moses gave him the spirit. And, and, and Elisha could continue the work of Elijah because he had the spirit. Now Jesus is saying that he is going, but he's going to give us another helper just like him that will not just be with us, but be in us. Right? And then we see it happen in Acts. Where they're there and they're praying for the Spirit and suddenly the, the, the place is filled with divine presence. Just like in the Old Testament. Just like the temple. Now if you think about the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet God, where did you go? You go to the temple. You wanted to go worship God, you go to the temple. You want to sacrifice something, you go to the temple. In the New Testament, they're there, they're praying and suddenly now God fills them. Individually. We're saying, now the temple, now people won't go to the temple, but the temple will go to them. The temple, God's temple, I am God's temple, you're part of God's temple. Now the temple is mobile and the temple is going to move out into this world. Ecclesia, the people that are called together to go out. 
You know, that's the vision that Jesus had of the church. That's the mission that Jesus has of the church. That we, the people of God, will go out to the dark places. That we won't, that we won't run away from it, that, but, but we will redeem that. You see, many times we have this consumeristic idea of church. I want to go to a church where they play the music that I like, to listen to the sermons that I like, that I will get a blessing. Now, there's nothing wrong with attending a church that you feel comfortable with and when you are being spiritually fed through the music and the sermons. That's a good thing. But that's not the, the primary thing that Jesus had in mind when he thought about church. The primary thing that Jesus had in mind when he thought about church is the people that go. The people that say, I am going to go into the darkness with the light that is in me, the spirit that is in me. That's going to call commitment from us. That's going to call us to say, I am all in to the vision of God. I am all in to the mission that Jesus has for me because he is calling every single individual here today to be a part of his mission. He is not just calling the pastors or the elders or the Arise students. Or, or, or He's calling all of us. He's calling all of us who want to be a part of the church to go and do what he has called us to do. Amen. Reminds me of a story of two uh, individuals, uh, a chicken and a pig. And uh, the chicken and the pig were married, uh, odd couple, but they were in love, and don't judge them. And, um, and so, you know, they, they weren't Christian, and you know, they weren't really religious, but they felt that there was a, a void in their heart, kind of meaninglessness in their lives, and they wanted that to be filled. And so they started attending a church, and kind of just sat at the back. And, and one day they heard there was a, a, a revival meeting going, and, and so they went again, and they were sitting at the back, and they were kind of just listening to this. And pastor was preaching about giving out everything to Jesus, being a part of the mission of God. And, and they got out there, and they're walking back home, and they're like, man, that was a profound sermon. I mean, we need to get involved in this. We need to do something. God is, I can feel the Spirit talking to me that we need to do something. What can we do in this city? What can we do for the mission of God? And so uh, the wife, Mrs. Henny, said to her husband, Mr. Piggy, uh, I've been thinking about this as well, and I'm wondering what can we do, what can we do? And, and I know there's lots of homeless people in this town that we are in, and a lot of them are hungry so maybe we can make them something to eat. Let's, let's, let's think of a creative way that we can get them together and give them something. You know what? I, I know what we can do. We can give them breakfast. You know, bacon and eggs. No, they weren't Adventists. They weren't Adventists. Bacon and eggs. And so Mr. Piggy is walking and he's thinking about this proposition and he turns to him and says, you know what? That's a very good idea. But I want you to realize that it's going to call a contribution from you, but it's going to take full commitment from me. When Jesus calls us to be a part of the church, he's not merely calling for contributions. He's calling for full commitment. Full commitment. All in. Everything that you have for the glory of God. And when you do that, man, you are, you are part of something so big. I cannot wait one day to get to heaven. And God will say, do you see this kingdom? Do you see this kingdom? You were a part of building this. In this world, we are busy with building the kingdom that is to come. Amen. And you can be a part of that. God is inviting you, calling you to say, come. Come and join me in my mission, in my vision, what I have called all of you to be a part of. Let's close our eyes and pray. Gracious Father, we come to you. And Lord, we want to be all in. We want to give everything that we have for you and your mission, Lord. 
Lord, many a time Christianity and the church has become a thing that we kind of just do on the side, something that we do once a week and go to a church, Lord, but you have a vision for the church. You have a, a mission for each of us, each individual, Lord. You have gift us, gifted us with talents and with, 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 uh, with um, capabilities, Lord. You have gifted us with resources, and you are calling each of us to, to, to work with you, be co-laborers with you. And some of us might be here today and say, but God hasn't called me. I don't have anything to contribute. Well, we know that your spirit works in us. It is not because we are good. It is not because we have just natural ability, but because your spirit is in us and your spirit leads us and guides us and gifts us and helps us. I pray, Lord, that all of us seated here will commit ourselves to be all in for the mission of God, to give everything that we have for you and your glory. Bless and keep us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.